I've actually seen quite a few cases have been posted online or one or two articles written. You know, people have said, oh, it's not sure if it's going to work. Actually, it's not going to work. And the way I view it is if someone's got an instanding premolar um, and they needed dull because of the why not just have, you know, a few, a few months or a couple of months of ortho? You know, it's not, not a rocket science to move that to. That's the point. If you've got a little bit of, you know, dial is effectively like doing some ortho. You know, it's like doing some ortho, but with it's like a bacteria bite plane. Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career. With your host, Jazz Gulati. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 17, the one that so many of you have been pestering me about. Uh, I sort of teased you with uh, the first episode with Dr. Tiff Qureshi, Dial Part 1, and then I threw in the 12 Rules of Dentistry, which was, please say, greatly received. Uh, and then a lot of people got value from that, and uh, now to continue on from that cliffhanger I left you on with Dr. Tiff Qureshi, I've got Dial Part 2 for you today. So this will be the spicy part. now. Before we get into an excellent conversation with the top man that is Dr. Tiff Qureshi, some important things. Firstly, a very happy new year to all my listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in in my first proper year. 2019 was really the first year I started podcasting and uh, honestly, I, I really, really appreciate you taking your time to listen to it. I struggle to listen to myself, you know, I, I make myself cringe, but the fact that other people are listening to me is just, uh, it blows my mind. So thank you so much. A massive shout out to one of my listeners, I'm not going to embarrass him, but he, he, he messaged me to say thank you because somehow the episode with Drew Shah and myself, episode three, Transition to Private, had such an influence on him that he decided to change his environment, change his mindset, and he thinks that good things have happened because of it. So now he's in, his goal was to be in full-time private practice and now looks like in the coming months he'll be able to achieve that. So if I've had that sort of influence on him, that has literally made it completely worth my while. And that's exactly what I'd like to do for as many people as I can. I, I love sharing my enthusiasm and my love for dentistry. And it's so great to hear stories like that. So thanks so much for reaching out to me. And thank you, Drew Shah, as well, for, for a great episode that we did in episode three. Secondly, I'm really sorry that I didn't give you a protrusive dental pearl with the last episode. To make up for it, I'm gonna give you today a really, really awesome producer dental pearl, which is gonna save you hundreds of pounds potentially. Okay, so hear me out. This pearl or this hack will save you money on buying a composite heater. So the first question that some people ask when you know we talk about heated composite or a composite heater is, why would you heat the composite in the first place? So from my understanding, from in vitro studies, it suggested that there are you know improved physical properties, a higher percentage cure, micro-mechanical details of that sort. Apparently, heated composite is a good thing to use. However, I like it because of the physical changes that happens. When you heat composite, it becomes much less viscous. The wettability of the composite significantly improves. So people use it for bonding Emacs onlays, for example, posteriorly. I use it also for injection molding, a la David Clark, i.e. The, the BioClear technique, which I love. I'm a huge fan of BioClear. So to use heated composite ensures that it'll flow into all the nooks and crannies of the bioclay matrix and prevent any air gaps and air voids. So it's, it's a great thing to use. So that's why you would essentially use heated composite. So what is a less expensive way to use heat composite? You know, these composite heaters can cost a significant amount. I've tried the following methods before over the last six years. I've tried a, a cheap three pounds Chinese make coffee mug heater, like a USB one. 
And that, that worked well, you know, actually did work. And it, you know, broke a few times. You just buy a new one. It's really cheap, you know, buy cheap, buy twice and all that sort of stuff. So it would work well. But the only issue is that I had no control over what temperature I was achieving. And apparently the literature suggests, and when I mean the literature, I mean Jason Smithson wrote it on Facebook, so it's gospel. It should be about 55 degrees. So I didn't know if I was hitting that 55 degrees or not. Another thing I've tried is by putting the compule up by the operating light. So you know your operating light, a lot of these lights have like a, a little gap. Like you, you can almost get your finger inside this little gap. It's difficult to explain. So you can put your compule inside this little gap and our light gets really hot. So the composite compules can get really hot through that method. And that worked really well. The problem with that is what happened to one of my patients once is I was moving the light around and the composite compule, you know, sort of fell on his head, uh, which was funny at the time, I guess, but in the patient was cool about it. So that can happen. Also, again, there's no control over what temperature I'm actually hitting by using the compule up in the light. The hack I have for you, the pearl I have for you, is to buy a really posh coffee marquita. So it's a really posh one. It's, it's by a company called Kasori. It's on, available on Amazon. I've, I'll put a link to it on my Facebook page uh, and my blog, www.jazz.dental, under the sort of episode 17, so you can click through. And it is phenomenal. If Tesla made coffee mug heaters, that's what it would look like. It's, it, it just looks really swish. It connects to your mains and you can actually control the temperature. So I'm, I'm going 55, 60 degrees, and I can, I can be confident that we're hitting that. So it, it looks really nice in front of patients. It looks professional. And it, you know, it doesn't actually look like a coffee mug heater at all. You can, you can make it what you want it to be. So it's, it, that, using that, which is just 30 pounds, is, is fantastic. So that's my major producer dental pearl for, to make up for, for a lack of a pearl last time. I think if you haven't got a composite heater and you like to use heated composite, get it. It's just fantastic. The gold standard, obviously, is to buy a proprietary composite heater. But these can cost upwards of 400 pounds to 1,200 pounds. And I'm not, I'm not against buying it. I just, you know, so if you please buy the best you can afford. But you know, here are a few reasons why I am not in a position to buy a 600 pound composite heater. Number one, I'm an associate. That's, that's pretty self-explanatory. I'm, I'm taking my gear to different practices. So I don't want to be, you know, moving around such expensive gear all the time. And, and number two, the money that I don't spend on equipment, I get to spend on courses. And you all know how much I love going on different courses. So, you know, for me, I value courses way more than paying, you know, I apologize for saying it, but over the odds for some materials. So I mentioned about this composite heater on a Facebook group and Steve walked in from Optident. Big shout out, Steve. Uh, awesome guy, awesome company, which is Optident. Um, he actually made a counter argument and said, hey, look, if you're undercutting the UK dental suppliers and you're going to Amazon to buy this, this tool to heat composite instead of buying a proper composite heater, then I might as well go to Turkey and get my implants done. Well, you know, I respectfully disagreed with him. It's very different to that. What I'm not recommending here is to go on eBay and buy counterfeit handpieces. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is where you can save money on things that, you know, you don't actually, actually actually have to put in the patient's mouth, do it. Why should we pay over the odds for something that we can achieve in simpler and cheaper means? Uh, I know plenty of people that use a baby bottle warmer to heat their local anesthetic or hypochlorite. So same principle, really. So I'm totally cool with that. If you think it's, it's immoral, then go ahead, buy the expensive composite heater. You can afford it. Do it. Totally. That's the best thing to do. I hope that pearl was useful to you. And now we can jump in and join Dr. Tiff Kreshi, what you've been all waiting for. And this is, I mean, one of the questions that we were sort of thinking about here was, you know, why do people not appreciate it? I think one of the biggest problems is, a lot, I think a lot of people use Dahl on the wrong patients when it's too late. And Dahl is really for patients that you've, you've had a relationship with. You, they understand what's going on 
And to actually say to, imagine to a brand new patient who's got a bit of wear on the lower anterior teeth, imagine trying to say to them, right, I need to build your anterior teeth up to improve your anterior guidance and disclude your posterior teeth, blah, blah, blah. What the hell is this guy talking about? I've been there, Tiff. I've done that. So you you must teach me and my listeners. Hopefully I'm better at it now than I was. But to tell me about how you would approach that and then how to actually communicate to patients, oh, you've lost your canine guidance. Interceptively, you'd benefit from an interceptive dial technique. So how do you approach that? It's all part of a, for me, a much more everyday comprehensive checkup. And I don't mean a comprehensive checkup as in like a comprehensive exam. I mean, you have your comprehensive exam, which, you know, you deal with a new patient. But actually, for every checkup, there's lots of little things that we can also be looking for, talking to the patients about, explain to them, that then helps them understand the dynamic picture of what's going on. So, you know, we've already mentioned tooth surface loss, you know, looking very carefully at dentine and making sure they understand that, you know, this stuff is six to eight times softer than that stuff. A lot of people don't understand that. When I actually give a lecture and I ask dentists and I, and I talk about dentine enamel and I say, you know, what do you tell patients about how soft that is compared to, I mean, literally one hand will go up in the room. So it's not something dentists potentially confident in saying, but actually patients need to know that that stuff is a lot softer. And as a result, it will wear, erode and whatever quicker. That's one thing. I tell my patients, but only because I went on your course in Sydney. So I, I do tell my patients, I show that because I take my DSLR photos in a comprehensive new patient examination and I show them, I was like, yeah, that, you know what that is? And they say, uh, no. They say, well, you know, that's, that's a dentine. That is seven times softer is what I'd say. I just leave them with that. So it's, it's co-diagnosis. Exactly. But, the, but then the key thing is, you know, if you do that on a, a checkup, you, t- you then reshoot that image six months, a year down the line. What I'll say to the patient is, okay, there is some wear there. I said, it's, I, it's not, that's not how it should be, but don't panic. I said, you know, your tooth isn't going to fall out from being like this. But what we want to do is to see how it looks in, you know, in a few months time, see if, if your bites change, see if you, any of the anterior contacts and critically also, of course, see if your teeth are moved. Because if there's, if you have the combination of anterior crowding and wear, then you have this whole kind of concept of potentially constricting envelopes, not in every patient, but in some patients. And I found that a really easy concept for people to understand. And, uh, you know, if they see a lower tooth sticking forward and and then an upper one subsequently sticking forward as well, and one upper one sticking back and a lower one sticking back, doing a very simple, and this is a thing that I do in every checkup, I do a very simple frematis check on every single checkup, every time to make patients aware of their tooth position. and, And the very simple way of doing it is I literally put my fingers on their teeth, I lean on their teeth front four fingers on the front eight teeth and I'm literally squeezing the ligament and I just say you know it's going to look like I'm playing piano on your teeth I said now I want you to bite fully on your back teeth and actually what often happens is a tooth that's out of position the one tooth or two teeth that are out of position they start to knock more heavily against one of the lower teeth and I say to the patient can you feel that and they'll say yeah I said well that's probably happening not 100% but probably happening because that lower one's drifting forward a little bit and it's the key point is it's continuing to slowly drift but it's slow. So we'll look at it again in six months or a year. We'll take a photo. You know, now we've got a scanner. So I'm telling him we'll scan it. And, and they said, you know, you don't, what we'll do is we'll look and see whether it's actually changing. And you know what usually happens? One year, two years, uh, it's happened five years later. A patient's come in and said, you know that you're telling me that, that those teeth are wearing a little bit. I think that tooth is moving. And I, I'm sure that tooth's darkening a little bit as well. Then we say, okay, this is what we can do as we've discussed. And we go from there. And that, I mean, in a nutshell, a lot of those cases described in that way, not even with tooth position, but just with tooth surface loss, you know, patients come back a little bit later, becoming a bit more aware of the color, the shape, the edges, the sharpness. And then they say, yeah, let's get it fixed. So hats off to you, Tiff, because no one actually talks about that. I mean, no one ever talks about, oh, five years later, I'm then going to give them the treatment plan. No one talks about that. So uh, ultimate respect for you for for having such a long-term view with that. And also, that's, you know, that's a great clinical tip to use your two hands 
your forefingers, front teeth, push down, ligament squeeze, bite together, and that really makes it tangible for the patient. The key thing is not, you know, is it, you mustn't panic people. It's about, I, I just say, I always reassure them that this is normal. This happens with a lot of people, you know, tooth movement and where it's a normal thing. Some people might call it aging, but, but actually it's preventable. So the key thing is, the, the problem is, like, so we got back to what we said earlier, you know, there's this whole kind of selling pressure people have. And there's all these gurus that teach you how to sell. And somehow if you don't make the sale on the day, you're upset. The way I describe it is what you should actually do is tell, don't sell. If you tell people what's going on, which a lot of dentists don't tell, you know, they talk about caries, they talk about perio, but they don't look at occlusion. They don't look at slow occlusal changes. They don't look at slow tooth positional changes. If you tell people about that, patients are not as stupid as we think, okay? I mean, you know, patients do understand. I mean, I talk about envelope of function every day in my practice in, in Kent, and every single day, one patient walks back in through the door and asks me how their envelope of function is. I, I, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not joking. And that, that, comes, that comes from yeah. literally a two-minute demonstration of how their teeth should be moving and then how their teeth are actually lightly moving um, and how much overjet they've got and how much overbite they've got. And that is a, a normal patient. Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental Podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app for free. Just search Protrusive on your app platform. Now, if you're a true Protrusive and you want to support the podcast, you want to claim CPD for all the listening and watching that you do, you want to get access to exclusive clinical walkthrough videos to make dentistry tangible, as well as a premium newsletter, access to the Protrusive Vault, and the ability to download all the clinical videos and podcast videos so you can view them offline later, you can get all of that for less than 15 tax-deductible dollars per month. So what are you waiting for? Download the Protrusive app now on iOS or Android for absolutely nothing. We've worked so hard on this, the Protrusive team, and I know you're just going to love it. Now back to the main episode. I feel sorry for these patients who, when they geographically relocate and they find a new dentist and they ask their dentist, how's my envelope function? And uh, how startled the dentist well, must be. <laughs> you know, you know it's, yeah, the thing is, yeah, envelope function is quite an interesting one, actually, because it's, it's theorized, um, you know, there's, there's Pete Dawson's work and Frank Spears' work on it. Um, there's not, unfortunately, there, there needs to be there needs to be real good clinical data on it because what I found quite amazing is that in some areas of the profession, some people have not even heard of it. Like in, in orthodontics, there are some orthodontists who've never even heard of it. Um, never heard. It's true. I've just finished my ortho diploma, and that was not mentioned. I mean, this is quite a comprehensive diploma, uh, you know, uh, and it was not mentioned once about the envelope function at all. And I think it's a, it's a key concept. But you know, we have to be honest, uh, Tiff, and you know this more than anyone that there are some camps who believe that actually there is no impact, and, and they believe it's purely parafunction. Whereas other camps, you know, believe that, yes, there is, you know, an element of that constriction, the teeth knocking together more. So, you know, technically, we will never, we can never make the study, but it just makes sense in terms of clinical observations we all make, we can see this. That's exactly right. And, and you know what, the way, I would, the way I would say is, those in doubt, please show me your case follow-ups 10, 15, 20 years later. Please show me them. You know what? They haven't got them. There's a lot of people that love to talk the talk, but they, they, they never see their patients again. And this is the thing. If you don't see your patients again, but you think you're, you know, a real hot shot, got no position to stand. That's the problem. And it goes, it goes back to, as I said, what, what's the core problem in our profession? I think actually our professional curriculum has been created for our own convenience, not for the patients. So people, you advance through your career and you get all these labels, but you're not necessarily actually doing anything better for the patient. What would be best for the patient is that you looked after that person if you carry out a complex treatment. And even if you can't, you make sure the work they had carried out gets looked after. 
And, you know, let me tell me anywhere in our profession where that occurs. I think the only area it does, I, and I believe, is perio. I think perio has just got that long-term mentality to it. But anyway, that's quite controversial. And the studies in perio, you know, the Axelson paper, 30 years and stuff, and, that, you know, they're, they're really into that. So I agree. That's probably the area of dentistry we have such beautiful long-term follow-ups. For implants as well, but for different reasons, basically. But, uh, yeah. but, but that's, that's a good <laughs> yeah. thing, you know. And I think a longitudinal view on everything is a good thing because it teaches us that not everything we do works and that stuff changes over time. So, you know, and it's GDP. It's always going to be the person that's going to see that. True. Next question I want to ask you is, do you routinely deprogram your patients before starting a dial case? Um, I have to say, my dial build-ups are my deprogrammer. <laughs> so so there was, once upon a time, I never did. Then once upon a time, I started to, and I started learning about splints and deprogrammers. And then actually, it sort of dawned upon me, why am I doing this? Well, actually, the thing that I'm bonding in their mouth is a deprogrammer. Okay. And so actually now, if it's an appropriate dial case, I mean, we'll come on to that, what's an appropriate dial case? Because there are a few things that aren't appropriate. But if it's an appropriate dial case, actually, the dial buildups are a deprogrammer. So I, what I tend to do is I tend to just, just build them up so that my initial point of contact is just slightly posterior to maximum intercuspal. And you could say, are you guessing? And actually, for years and years, I guessed. And then actually, I started to try to, to take records. And I then started to set my dial up to my supposed CR records. And it doesn't, it made no difference whatsoever. So the key thing is you put the dial, you put the buildups in, but then it's critical you get the patient back two weeks, four weeks later. Because at that point, you may well find the patient's now deprogrammed and suddenly you develop, there's an interference posteriorly. I have to say. Fantastic. And I'm glad you've said that. So how many times has that happened to you? Because you've done dial more than anyone probably. So how many times has that happened to you? Um, well, I'd say it's quite rare because it's probably one in 25 cases, maybe something like that. And the reason why is that if you think about it, you're actually separating the back teeth. And so therefore, yes, of course, the jaw can reseat and then it can, it can find a new position. But because the back teeth are separated, what effectively then happens is a process of, you know, in inverted commas, natural equilibration. So it's quite rare. I have had to, you know, there's been your tooth where you, you find a, you know, a, a cusp of lower seven or upper six or something is knocking where it wasn't before, but it's not that common. And and, you know, it's happened to me in, in my fifth, probably the fifth dial case I've done and the, the patient had deprogrammed and I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. So I've had to follow it up and, and treat it. And there's a really good dental update paper I actually put on as well where these clinicians, I think Leeds Dental Hospital, had a case where they just went ahead, waxed it up, did a, did a dial and then the patient deprogrammed to a, a quite a significant horizontal sort of re condylar repositioning so that now they were extremely class two div one. They've lost all their anterior guidance. Yeah. So it's rare though. I agree with I was going to postulate two to three percent. You said one in 25. So it's, you know, that, we don't have any, I, I don't suppose we have any data on this, but that, that's, you know, from, coming from you, I, I totally respect that. So but this is why personally my philosophy is I do deprogram, but I'll, I'll tell you about the, uh, okay, how about you tell me say, if there's anything else you want to tell me, but also tell me that, okay, once your patients have dialed in, what are you, how are you managing them with, with splints or not with splints? Okay, so just I'll come back, come to that in a second. But basically, another thing just to say, and, and you know, a lot of the papers that are written on these, if you look at the patients that have been treated, a lot of them are train wrecks already. This is the key. You know, a lot of the cases that end up in universities and hospitals, cases that dentists have left far too long. And so a lot of these patients are, you know, they, these patients have proper sort of severe occlusal issues. If I showed you, and I'm, I'm not saying that those patients shouldn't have been treated, and, and of course they need to treat it. But if you look at a lot of the cases that I've treated, they're patients that are early, early phase. You sort of get my point. So what I'm, I'm and, that, and that's the thing. It's quite it's quite a difficult thing to kind of explain. And I'm not saying that you. The point being is that that the patient that was treated in Leeds or whoever should never have probably got that far. That's the point. And that, and that patient has ended up there because the dentist, you know, couldn't do anything about it. 
Dial is a treatment for almost your everyday patient. It's a treatment that I actually believe virtually every single person, now you put it at a high percentage of people, at some point in their life would benefit from. If it's only used to treat a train wreck, or if it's used to treat a train wreck, it will be unpredictable and it won't always work for it should be for preventing a train wreck. That's kind of the way we think about it. It's it's preventative treatment. It should not be as severe. I have used it in cases where they, you know, there is a lot of wear already, but they're just about, the patient's now just starting posterior wear, but you can see they're a really heavy bruxist and they're quite young and they've gone through their teeth quite quickly. And, and that's exactly the patient that had the condylar repositioning quite significant in my case, actually. So that's why now, since then I've started to deprogram. But I take your point that actually maybe when we're using it appropriately, interceptively, the, the need for that may not be as significant as those sort of train wreck patients who have had severe occlusal issues, severe bruxism, that sort of stuff. Exactly. And actually, one, you know, when I, when I keep in my courses, I'm actually starting, I appreciate a lot of people that come in and listen are kind of looking at this from the first time and what I actually tell them is in those patients you know, if you can identify proper TMD or you know someone with a massive shift I actually don't don't do it on that case I do use it on that case but I wouldn't start with a patient that's got you know restricted opening and huge clicks and all that sort of stuff and massive amount to service loss really this is for somebody you build the discussion up with over time they're losing their guidance you're trying to prevent them and through a combination of dull and potentially ortho you're trying to prevent canine width collapse loss of OVD earlier rather than later that's really the key now yes i do use it on patients who do have uh, kind of more severe tooth wear and they're more into it and if they've just not got posterior wear and and i'm just about okay to do dial but they're heavy bruxes then my, then my strategy is this I, I will dial them exactly the same way we go through a period where yeah there's a little bit of, uh, of of worry and risk when we're waiting because obviously actually one issue is when you're waiting for dial to occur you can't really wear a full mouth splint or anything to protect it because you're trying to wait for that compensation to actually occur i'm going to come on to that because i want to speak about uh, splints and so at the moment when you're dialing them you're leaving them nude no splint no splint. No, I do sometimes. Like an anterior only splint, maybe? But that has to be given to a patient that you, you trust. And what I mean by that is a patient that you trust to follow the instructions. And the instructions are, of course, that, that as soon as their back teeth start to touch when they are eating and they've removed it, they must remove it quickly. And that's what also means that you follow them up quite quickly. Obviously, the last, the last thing you'd want is to leave it there and, and, and then end up with an anterior bite post-treatment, which is possible, of course. It is possible. So sometimes if i'm worried about that i will protect them but actually so what i used to do for years i mean i'm being careful honest, years and years ago i would dial them okay and then if i was worried about teeth chipping well back in those days we gave them a um, a rubber bite guard which we we know are well some people actually don't believe them but i think they're completely useless but anyway again i used to give a rubber bite guard then i started getting into splints and started you know learning how to do splints like you know, i use splints and i can still use splints so i started using splints but actually, I have to say, the vast majority of my more severe wear cases treated with dull are now dull and an Essex retainer. And that's it. And I found that that in most patients is enough. I can kind of think of the last five years, there's only one patient whose teeth, who kept going through the Essex and then ended up giving them a splint. And I think part of the reason being is that actually having the dial buildups bonded in your mouth is it's kind of you know, it, it, it will because we, we no one really understands how to you know, why people bruck there's loads of reasons for it we know there's loads but it but actually opening the bite building the anteriors it's as i say the way i describe it it's like having a a deep a anterior splint bonded in your gob that you can't remove and and actually i found patients i've got loads of examples of patients who i did treatment on who are severe bruxes and that i dulled them and actually some of these people didn't come back for five years and they came back. I didn't have no splint, no Essex, and all the composite was still there. And you think, well, you know what I mean? There's lots of examples, not like one or two, lots. 
So actually, now, now, of course, their life circumstances might change. The stress levels might reduce. They might, might be sleeping better at night. They might, you know. But if you think of the mechanics of that situation, I mean, you've built someone, you've rebuilt their anterior guidance. So even if they are bruxing, the fact that it's anterior contacts so and muscle contractions are less, and that's part of the theory. Exactly. And this is the point, you know, even if you're a bit negative about DAR, you think, well, what are you actually doing? You're just adding something to the teeth. You're not spending a fortune on it. And, and actually, it's quite simple to do. It doesn't take very long. And we'll talk about that perhaps as well, about how to do it. But because I think some people, some of the techniques that I've seen become so complicated that actually almost puts people off from doing it. But but actually, it's not that difficult, not that simple. But what's the worst that can happen? There's no preparation. I don't prepare the teeth at all. So even if after, who knows, three years, it all wears back down to nothing. The way you look at it is, You've got three years where none of your tooth, there's been no further tooth surface loss. And, and I take a view really that if I can get anything from five to eight years out of it, even if we, and I tell the patients, you know, the way you think about it is for five to eight years, your, your teeth are going to be the same. So there'll be no theoretical aging of those particular teeth. And, and when it comes back. Oh, I love that aging of your teeth. That, that's a communication gem because patients need to be, you know, hear it in a way that they can understand. So I'm writing that one down, aging of your teeth. That's really good. Because, you know, tooth aging is, it's, it's tooth surface loss, it's taking up a colour, it's chipping, it's movement. And, you know, and I think another thing people don't appreciate is, is how, and particularly I think when you see it over the years, you see a patient over the years, you notice a tooth that has dentine exposure. If you look at a patient over the years, just watch how dark that tooth goes. You know, so again, it's another thing, there's no longitudinal kind of view on it. But teeth go dark, and it's because dentine absorbs stain massively. And that's particularly if someone drinks tea, coffee, smokes, you just know that someone with an open, you know, dentine, I'm going to talk about what's called a dentine lesion for a minute, but with an open exposed dentine, they're going to get darker tooth, and that all contributes to aging. So, yeah, the point being is that... No, I like that very much. And the reason I asked about the splints, and basically when you were, when you were talking, I wish you were videoing actually because I was smiling ear to ear, because this is a huge part of my... I mean, I'm massively into splints, and I do all type splints, but my go-to splint for someone uh, and I'm glad you mentioned it who has no temporomandibular issues at all healthy who has no muscle issues okay I am totally happy with a passive fitting and it has to be for me it has to be passive fitting I get the lab to uh, block out the undercuts Essex retainers so that they're really comfortable and easy because you don't want to give someone a really tight Essex retainer to put them, you know, the compliance will be less. So I'm so glad you mentioned that. And that's a lot, uh, I use that as a protective appliance. So not really a therapeutic or diagnostic, it's a protective go-to appliance for me because it's cheap and cheerful. It, it, it works uh, and it's, it can be comfortable when it's made the right way. So I'm so glad you mentioned that. No one no one talks about that. Exactly. I mean, I'm, this is the thing, and I'm, I'm just, you know, it's this is kind of what I'm using. I've gone, I've gone through, I say, through a whole spectrum of usage of various devices. And I, I did go through a whole period of, you know, experimenting Michigan Tanner style splints. And you know what? I've had great results from various things but what i do find now is that the vast majority of cases if they can be and remember these are those appropriate style cases and those are most of the cases i'm treating i don't treat massive train wrecks because i'm trying to prevent them that's the point i get a patient comes in who you know needs a lot done and you know i deal with it and i deal with it as i need to deal with it but most of them end up with build up um which i know have an effect and then vast majority with Essex retainers. And the ones that break through those or, you know, keep power function or who knows, begin power function later for another poten- potential reason, those are more than happy to go on to some, some other type of splint for them if they need to. But they're quite, but it's quite rare. And, you know, the thing is, I think you can only really, you can only really judge this if you've been seeing people for long enough to know. It's very difficult to, to make an assumption of what, how someone's teeth are going to change 
five, 10, 15 years later, unless you see them again, or you have the intention to see them again. That's really the key. Tiff, have you heard of a, a flexi orthotic splint? Have you heard of this fossa appliance by any chance? I have actually, but I don't, I don't, I don't know a massive amount, but I have heard a little bit of, I've heard, I've heard the name. So I use this in my protocol and I use this in my dial protocol. And what I'll, what I'll go ahead and do is I'll share a full protocol case on Facebook yeah, yeah, and I'll tag you in it. Okay. Um, I absolutely love this splint for dial cases. Basically the uh, acrylic that you mix actually bonds to the, the polyester copolymer of, co- copolymer of the splint itself. So I actually use it as an anterior only deprogrammed right. appliance first. Okay. And then once I've done the buildups, the patient doesn't need a new splint. I just gouge out the old acrylic and I reline it. Oh, right, right. That sounds quite, yeah, interesting. Which is amazing, which is so good. And then when the posterior contacts are reestablished, I then will convert them to an Essex or if, if they're really a heavy bruxis, because one thing you could do with the splint is you can color it in black with the Sharpie pen and then you can see their parafunctional patterns and when they come back they're like oh my gosh yes I'm grinding so I, I think you really like this splint I'll show you uh, I've got quite a few cases with it now uh, with Dart so I'll, I'll put one on see what you think I'd love to hear what you think uh, about that so I'll stick that on and I'll tag you and, uh, as part of this sort of uh, episode so I'll be sure to I'm going to make a note to do that now sure sure yes please do that sounds really interesting actually yeah. okay so I think we'll have to wrap up soon but there are some uh, honestly this has been brilliant so far so I just want to say uh, have you seen any Dahl cases no actually no, I don't want to talk about that Let, let's talk instead about okay so in those cases where Dahl may not be successful we know it's incredibly successful especially in the cases that you're doing case because you, uh, you're doing TIFF because your case selection would be quite good uh, and so in those cases where it might not go to plan I tend to have that discussion beforehand it's part of my consent process I might say okay in a small very small number of cases it may not work what this means for you is more time a bit more money and you know that sort of thing so how do you have that conversation with patients up front and ha- how many times have you had to then sort of add composite or posteriorly or other restorations posteriorly to actually do more like a full mouth rehab um i have to, I have to say honestly genuinely i don't think that's ever happened and i'm, I'm not kidding you it's because your case selection is really good i'd, I'd say it is. i mean uh, then, yeah there must have been your case where maybe i built a tooth up to get it into contact or something but I think part of it is, I mean, the case selection is really important and I think it's probably important. I'll, I'll run over a couple of things of cases not to do. That's important because this is where I see and I have seen some people who are very well known in the industry and they talk about, oh, it doesn't work and, and you, know, you know, and actually even show some case presentations or write blogs and stuff. And I'm looking at the cases again. Those are the wrong cases. Now, the problem is, who am I to say they're the wrong cases? I think the problem is there is a lot of dial theory out there. There's a lot of evidence and, and whatever it may be. But there's nothing really that talks a lot about case selection. There's nothing about particularly about protocols. And no, I don't think everyone's ever done the, the, the studies on it. So what I would say is, you know, num- fundamentally, number one, obviously, we've already talked about patients with warm posteriors. It's not a patient for warm with warm posteriors. I'd also say any patient with perio issues is just a no-no. Um, and, and certainly any any patients that's got you know significant bone loss or anything like that is out of the question now, this- but tiff you find that your bruxis patients or your you know extremely parafunctional patients you know um they sort of select themselves because those who have perio-susceptibility they would have experienced it in a big way i think this obviously there's no evidence to support perio occlusion parafunction stuff but you know the what you know the kind that got like massive exostoses and stuff that might be uh, I don't know, maybe you'll come on to this are those cases to avoid darling because maybe their teeth um, won't erupt no, as much not necessarily i mean it, it, uh, what i would say is okay one of the most important things also is to avoid a heavily misaligned posterior arch or arch forms that are 
heavily tilted. This is a really important one because I, I found... Do you mean like a cant, like a maxillary cant? Uh, uh, potentially, or posterior arches where they're just heavily misaligned, where you've got a lot of crossover on the molars. You know, you've got like an inspanding premolar. Okay. And I've seen that. I actually, I've actually seen quite a few cases have been posted online or one or two articles written. You know, people have said, oh, it's not sure if it's going to work. Actually, it's not going to work. And the way I view it is, if someone's got an instanding premolar, um, and they needed dull because of like, why not just have you know a few months, a few months or a couple of months of ortho? You know, it's not not a rocket science to move that too. That's the point. If you've got a little bit of you know, dull is effectively like doing some ortho. You know, it's like doing some ortho, but with it's like a fat interior about bike plane. And I think anyone that's got you know misaligned arches, because the way you've got to think about it is you're you're expecting this segment to sort of move. Now, in the studies say it's eruption. I think there's a degree of compensation and potentially a touch of eruption. But but the way I view it is that if you've got and, and maybe some uh, joint repositioning, maybe yeah, oh yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, the joint repositioning's been shown, and and actually it's of benefit anyway. But no, you're absolutely right. But if you think about how the teeth actually move, I mean, I've looked at teeth slowly over the months that they move. They actually, they, you know, they all, they kind of, if you think about two teeth touching each other, two molars touching it, there's all, I've seen almost tiny mesiodistal rotations. Do you see what I mean? Almost tilted a little bit. So yeah, yeah. it's much more predictable if a patient's got a well-aligned arch. That's simply, quite simply it. So, and if the patient's got a really bad arch, so there's like huge instanding premolars, canine tipped out to the side, then that's not a dull case to me. And that's really, really important. And I don't think enough people say that. And I've seen, you know, a few occlusion gurus do cases like that and then then complain it's unpredictable. And reality is it doesn't work in those cases. Another one, the classic one is uh, the sort of the example of a step occlusion where you've got someone who's already had, you know, they've got, um, you know, they've basically got a hugely uh, already overcompensated three to three region. And and I've seen tr- people tr- like a massive curve of space. Yeah. Again, you know, that was that's 10 years too late. That case needs ortho to basically intrude those teeth and level the arch, and may you know you may then may then do some bonding or whatever afterwards. Um, obviously, anterior open bite cases as well. You know, there's no point as well. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's those sorts of cases that I won't do dal. And and what I would say is that you know it's really really important to think about dal. And this is kind of what I hope this um, this podcast will help people do is to start to think of it as in, as intercept treatment. And if you you know you've seen my presentation, but the cases that I show that I use dal on, they're not crazy cases. These are patients who are starting to get tooth wear, loss of anterior guidance. Yes, some of them are combined with ortho, so there's a bit of crowding and stuff as well. But what I did is I treated them, we hold their teeth in a better, more functional position and, and critically a retained position, you know, better anterior guidance. You know, in 5, 10, 15 years later, you, you look at the teeth and you think, well, if we hadn't done that, where would those teeth be now? You see what I mean? Kind of. That's really the key. The key is to try and use it interceptively. Basically, it's not a. Tr- it should not be a treatment that when you see a traditional, you know, heavy tooth wear case. Oh my God! Look at the wear on that patient. I'm not thinking dull. You see what I mean? I mean other people yes, think. Yes, uh, I other agree. Think, oh, I agree. dull. Dull's the alternative to occlusion. No, it's not. It's not. And actually, it, it's it's an adjunct. And um, you know, I, I know Ian Buckle really well, and he's a really good friend of mine. And, and we're actually doing. I'm I'm doing the Dawson uh, modules with him. I'm on module three in January. So yes, uh, Ian top man. Exactly. And you know, Ian's he Ian I, I meet and I talk to Ian all the time, and we you know he's doing running a course with IS and doing some pieces with us. But he came in and sat and watched my lecture, and he's basically said to me, you know, this is the bit that kind of is missing from a lot of traditional approaches because what we what we end up doing is fixing a problem which could be could have been prevented all along now what you're doing and what you're learning within you need to learn because there's always going to be patients that never go to the dentist you know there's always going to be patients who never go their teeth wear and they get to that point where what you are learning from Ian, you will be able to 
offer the patient a very viable treatment. But the point being is there's a lot of patients who go through their whole life seeing a dentist every six months. Their teeth are gradually wearing. Anterior guidance is reducing. Their bite potentially could be deepening. They may be getting more loss of anterior, uh, loss of canine width. And the dentist says nothing and says nothing. And dentists don't diagnose, and I can say this because um, I didn't used to, you know, so my story is, and I've said it on a podcast episode before, is that when I was a a first year, after DF1, associate part-time, I'd read the prosthodontist notes and the patients out in front of me because the the previous practice owner was a prosthodontist, and he'd said there was a line, wear facets, you know, upper right five, upper left four, lower left six, and I'd look at the teeth, wait, I don't see anything. Yeah. I know, and exactly, you know. Oh my goodness. And when you when you start seeing them, you start seeing them. And so now on my exact coding, there's a code we make, uh, a TW, it's an orange, so toothware for me. And and my system, that's a, and maybe you have a better system, Tiff, I'd love to know it. Other than photos, your, your system of photos is very comprehensive. Each individual tooth, that's as comprehensive as it gets. But uh, my charting system is I put one toothware if there's been any degree of toothware from attrition, if you like, or erosion. But if there's dentine exposed, I put toothware times tooth. There'll be two TWs on that tooth code. So, but I'm the only one I know, especially in my circle of friends, dentists, other associates, principals I work with, no one does that. Well, I think, you know, the, pro- the problem is, I mean, and we're actually getting into political territory, and I don't, I'm not afraid to do that. But I think the problem is, is that our system has kind of encouraged us not to. The system the way it is now, particularly with UDAs, almost gets to the point where if a dentist identifies this problem, you have to tell the patient, and then what's the solution going to be? It's that, I, mean, I don't understand how UDAs work. What I do understand is, from my understanding, for dentists, identifies a problem, offers a solution to a patient, they're probably going to have to spend a lot of, a lot of time on it and they're not going to get the fee to justify the time. Is that correct or am I incorrect? It's correct, isn't it? So actually our system is sort of dis- discouraging people to actually even to talk about it. And, and you think about it, how, you know, that is just astounding. I find it, particularly being in private dentistry for a while, and I think about, you know, you think about what the NHS offers. In my head, if the NHS was fee per item and actually was core service, I'd go back to it in a heartbeat. I would do. You know, I actually believe in it. But I think the biggest problem we've got is we've got a system which has been created by people. And, you know, I'm not going to point the finger at any individuals here, but it's been created by people who actually don't understand dentistry. They don't understand long-term dentistry. It's all about fix and it's all about politics. And I, I think the problem is, yeah. and when it was fee, the reality is when it was fee per item, it was a lot easier to do dull. <laughs> it was a long-term career. Yeah. You know, I've come, I came from a very kind of privileged era where actually we had fee per item. We had NHS patients. We could talk about the difference between private and dentistry and we could offer them different things. UDAs meant that became very difficult and actually it pushed dentists into a corner. And, you know, the way I think about it is those people that thought that UDAs was a good idea you know, I, I actually think they need to be made accountable for because the damage that they've done to the profession over the years is, is absolutely spectacular because it's made it very, very, very absolutely. difficult for dentists to actually talk honestly with their patients. And actually, it's created this whole, I'm either private or I'm NHS. And this is kind of what I'm saying. It's very, it's harder for young dentists to be able to convert their patients. It can be done. But the problem is, is that, you know, you've got this scenario that makes it hard and kind of, I'm, I'm going off subject slightly, but the, but the reality. No, no, not at all. This is important. This is, this is the, the, the real world issues that we face this is why i think that you know dull is something that it's difficult because it, it can't be it sort of can't be offered now the what, what i do say to, to dentists is actually a lot of cases that have dull sometimes need ortho and the best thing about ortho is if you're an adult you're not having it so, so actually it makes the conversation quite a bit easier so so you can kind of so you can kind of say this is a whole ortho restorative treatment plan and you could potentially take your conversation in that direction but uh, i mean fundamentally so dull is should be an interventive treatment based on people who you've been speaking to and you're identifying sort of slow changes. And as I said, you're trying to prevent, the way I look at it, dialysis is for me to try and prevent a full-month rehab. And actually, 
I actually take a view that if I if I see a formats rehab, it's not something to celebrate. It's actually an ab- abhorrent reflection of the fact that our profession can't cope with those patients and fails to prevent those patients from getting there. Um, and our goal should be to always stop it. And in my practice, you know, I, I can genuinely say any patient that's come to see me and stayed with me has never ever gone on to their needle formats rehab. You know, so I've treated some. I've treated some. Of course, they treat some because they walk through the door. But no patient who's, I mean, I've got, actually, a patient yesterday, it's lovely lady, she's 86, and she's on her fourth dial recycle nearly 26 years later. Uh, okay, and when I say re- I, wow, I mean, obviously, I don't take the material off and put the same material back on. What I mean is we strip it off. <laughs> Someone did ask that question when I said the term recycle. But um, I'm getting all a bit Greta Thunberg here with recycle and stuff. But, um, but basically, yeah, it, it's when, when the dial when dull cases wear down and start to, to you know, look bad and start to fail and, you know, they're not guiding anymore, you literally strip it off, start again. And the problem with that, there's no, there's no evidence, there's nothing to say how many times you can redo it, what's actually happening. But I'm on, I say I'm on my fourth, you know, who knows, hopefully we'll get to my fifth with her, but we'll see. That's interesting, actually. So, you know, when we're doing repeat, will will the sort of mechanics of dial continue to work? And obviously they do because you've been doing it. So that obviously works. And I think it's a great philosophy. It's a great way you run your practicing life. And uh, honestly, you're a massive inspiration to, to young dentists, Tiff. I just want to leave you with three little reflections. I want to hear your views on this. And then we'll, for interest of time, yeah, we'll call yeah. it a day. Yeah? So first thing you mentioned about the in-standing premolar yeah, yeah. sort of scenario. So in that scenario, I'm thinking, okay, this patient would benefit or in, you know, quote unquote benefit from orthodontics or it'd be an alternative plan. So in that orthodontic plan, would you then be intruding the anteriors to then create the space to then rebind the guide? Is that sort of where you were getting to as well, instead of doing a dial? Yep, definitely. Because actually, you know, one of the best ways of fixing the lack of anterior space is with ortho. And if ortho is appropriate and if there is, an, if there is actually anterior crowding or anterior tooth movements that need doing, then that needs to be offered to the patient. The patient may not choose it, and I probably say some patients don't. And if they've only got an instanding premolar, and it, it can be fixed very simply. So sometimes they say, "Just fix that. We'll do the rest of it with the build-up." You see what I mean? So, but the, the option has to be okay. on the table. And as with all, though, every option has to be comprehensive. Has to be on for every, you know. Absolutely. And the patient makes the decision really. So, but yeah, you, you, it may well be, and it's it's happened. You know, it's happened in many many cases that I've come across in the past where we've done exactly we've done that, or actually in many cases the orthodontists I refer to have done that. Brilliant. And the next thing, last of the two I want to talk about is uh, now with the advent of an accessibility of digital dentistry and you mentioned scanners, are you doing this thing whereby your dial cases, you're seeing them every couple of months and then scanning them and doing like a little time lapse? Because if that, that study needs to be done. We would learn so much from that. No, I am. I am. And actually, it's quite quite interesting because I've got you know I've got a new scanner. I had a scanner for about 18 months on loan, which was wonderful having it on loan. Um, and I, I did quite a lot of scans on those cases. And what I'm trying to do now is actually marry up those original scans with those same patients. But anyway, we had a new scanner for about, about I don't know, six weeks or so now. I'm scanning so many patients now for the basis of patient monitoring. But yes, also, um, I've, I've been doing a couple of dial cases where I've scanned those. And now I'm actually going to, the plan is to then see the patients in a month and then rescan them, see the patient in three months. We could learn so much uh, as a profession from that and also about the mechanics of it, which is, you know, a little bit disputed, I guess. So that's amazing that you're, you're doing that. And I can't think of anyone better who's who's doing that. I've got to give a call out to one of my friends, Andy Wallace, who, who's been, who's, who's even further ahead on the, on, on the curve than me on that one, because I know he's got a couple of cases at the moment. He's sort of mid-scanning so you know it'd be interesting I'm actually waiting to see his results Andy's a, a top guy and part of the tubule sort of a crew and I went to his um, Inman course actually so uh, yes shout out to Andy thank you so much for the work you do 
the last reflection is my theory on why some dentists are against dal is it be- it means that it, their big tickets will not come through so basically you have to charge the patient way less you're being way more minimal and you don't get to do the posteriors and that could be a reason why maybe dal is not favored i think it is one reason um it's definitely it's definitely the only reason i think one we've covered some of the reasons in that perhaps a lot of the you know if you use the term gurus the, those gurus are seeing those patients way too late and those gurus perhaps also don't have regular patients perhaps you know they're they're acting like pseudo specialists you know it's like a they're in a niche area where they wouldn't see the the sort of interceptive opportunities exactly and they're seeing patients who are already too far gone and that's completely understandable um but i do there is definitely an element i don't think so much in this country i really do believe in this country and most of europe i think that really are health professionals first and business people second um and i appreciate there are other areas of the world that may be a little bit different um but i do think that ultimately you know we we do hopefully think what's right for patients is best but yeah there, there is definitely i mean i i have sort of given lectures on on dial in various countries around the world i've had a couple of people sort of say to me you know well this is all well and good but you know what about my what about the milling machine i've just bought and what about this and what about that and i'm thinking what, what about the bottom line yeah and I, you know that's fair enough i i, I kind of it's be very easy for me to get angry about that and think, oh you know you should be thinking about the patient but ultimately i can understand why they're thinking that but i think that's a very short kind of narrow-minded and perhaps short-term view because as i said if you know if we were all less focus on this big ticket new patient walk through the door i'm going to charge them five or ten grand type of thing and you thought about a patient about keeping that patient for for life you thought about all the people they were going to refer into you that you don't have to kind of fight with mentally and try and worry about getting sued by them and all that sort of stuff um you think about you know that sort of enjoyment you get out of seeing your work five ten years later and you know i think perhaps that's the problem i don't think enough dentists do because i don't think enough dentists think that's a thing to do um then actually i think there's a much this sort of long-term view, and I call it, a lot of my lectures now, I call it the lifetime patient. That's a term that I use. And, and I think that the more we think about that and the more that word and that process gets put out there, um, the more hopefully people will realise that dentistry is not just about you know, it's not just about big ticket. It's not just about Instagram. It's not about, you know, here's my before and afters. It's about, actually, it's about here's before and after five years later. Here it is 10 years later failing. And this is why it's failing. And and is it failing? You know, the patient's still happy and the patient still loves me. And, you know, that and that's just a different view. Um, so I think that there's a lot, you know, I've kind of come away from it. It helped being a cosmetic dentist. You know, it helped with me being that sort of person that thought I was like this hot shot walking around in the white suit with my name written on it and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and I thought, oh, yeah, I'm a superstar. But over time, I realized, actually, I learned a huge amount from that. And I don't, I don't mean to belittle anyone that does that. Because of course. I learned course. a massive amount from smile design, impression taken. But actually, what I didn't learn was ethics. And I'm not saying that they need to learn that. But I think being a general practitioner and seeing the work that you did that you probably realized you shouldn't have done come back to actually haunt you and you having to fix it and you having to... F- you know, a case that I sold with smile design technology, you know, 20 years ago, we had a version of digital smile design. And I remember selling cases like that. And, and I kind of looked at them five, 10 years later thinking, why did I do that? You know, and, and actually, that's, I think, re- it's probably the one, you know, for my generation, dentists, it's probably the one, it's a, it's a terrible thing to go through. But actually, it's a one advantage, a way of learning what not to do. I think that's really, really valuable as well. And you're so honest to, to talk about these matters and honestly, just uh, highlights your, your ethos and uh, everything you're about. And, uh, you know, with this episode, uh, it's so many gems in there. And even though it's been, I think, two, three years since I did your course, uh, I retain. I, it was good to see I retained a lot of information. But again, there are some few things, a few gems that you gave me that I can implement Monday morning. And uh, it's changed quite a bit since then, actually. So <laughs> come back again. It's changed quite a bit since then. I've kind of restructured it. Brilliant. OK, well, I'll have to. And I'm looking forward to sharing that case that I told you about with the Fossipline's 
really want your input on it. I mean, more than anyone. So uh, I'll put that on as well. So th- where does that appliance come from? Who created that? So um, the, uh, Gary Unterbrink, Switzerland. Yeah, Gary Unterbrink. That's the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the name. I remember missing a lecture of his and thinking, damn, I wish I watched it because then everyone was talking about it after. Like, he, might, he might have been at BACD or somewhere that I, and I missed him. Anyway, that's thank you for that. Yeah. No, no, I'll, I'll tag you in that when I can. But Tiff, thank you so much for, for coming on and inspiring everyone. As always, keep doing your thing. You know, what you're doing for our profession is amazing. And again, I'm so glad that you're getting this uh, prize, which obviously means so much to you. And I'm so I'm so glad that you're a dentist from the UK and we have, we have someone to look up for, look, look up to. So thank you so much, Tiff. Thank you very much, Jazz. Take care. Speak later on. Thank you. Cheers. So there we have it, folks. As a dental geek, I absolutely loved having Tiff Koreshi on the show. I hope you gained a lot from his two episodes. That, that case that I mentioned to Tiff, the, the one that I would tag him in it of me using the FOSS appliance and my, my dial protocol, I did actually post that on Facebook with about 60 photos step-by-step. Step. I'm a huge fan of doing step-by-step step photos because I, I, you know, I, I've done it before, obviously, but I don't like the whole thing. Here's a before and after. Look how awesome I am. I like to teach and share and I'm open to getting criticized and scrutinized. I feel like if someone can criticize me and scrutinize me, I will gain, I'll become a better dentist from it. So I've actually posted my entire protocol of a dial case on my Facebook. So the way you can easily access it instead of me giving you like a long sort of URL is if you just go to www.jazz.dental forward slash dial, that's D-A-H-L, then it will redirect you to my Facebook page, to the album that has all the 60 photos. Let me know what you think and you'll see that the Foss Appliance in action, which has just been fantastic for my dial cases. Uh, And if you want to learn more about this type of splint, there is a hands-on course happening in February. If you want more information, please message me. It's me me who's teaching on it, but it's mostly being marketed internally to the people people who use this lab uh, but there might be a few places available and if you're interested it's in Thatcham near Reading Newbury Way so please message me if you're interested in that you know hit me up on Instagram so thank you so much for listening all the way to the end and I'm really looking forward to the next one thank you so much everyone